name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to The Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. It's nearly a year since we launched The Swap, and we've covered a whole bunch of different issues over that time, from benchmark reform and ESG, to Brexit, diversity, and investment bank profitability. In this episode, we turn to a fast-growing sphere of the financial world that we haven't yet touched on, crypto assets. Now, crypto assets certainly aren't new. They've been around in various forms for a number of years now. But what is new is a widespread recognition that they're here to stay, along with growing interest from banks, institutional investors, central banks, and regulators. Crypto assets come in many shapes and sizes, and there are probably just as many views on what the future will hold for this asset class. Will it remain a market dominated by retail investors looking to make a quick buck? Or is this the future of money ultimately replacing physical cash altogether? Here with me is Scott Amalia, is the CEO. And Scott, how has your thinking developed on crypto assets over the last few months and years? I'm absolutely fascinated by this topic, the scale, the value that it's created. It's been a very long journey. And as we've watched the technology and innovation, we were watching DLT here in kind of the traditional banking space. And we were focused on using DLT as a great innovation device. But at the same time, as you pointed out, there's a really unique currency overlay to this, as well as other trading behaviors around that currency. So it's really been fascinating to watch this journey. And there's the retail phenomenon that really didn't touch institutional markets, but now that's changing. And I think it's changing in a significant way. So it's growing and it's being more integrated into traditional finance. And we're seeing derivatives based on crypto assets becoming more prevalent. So it's time to get more involved. So let's talk about our guest. You're going to be interviewing someone who knows a thing or two about derivatives, but was also very quick to embrace digital assets. Absolutely. I'm really looking forward to chatting with Chris Giancarlo, former chairman of the CFTC, also my colleague for a brief time in 2014 when we were both at the CFTC. And before that, he worked many years in the derivatives industry, including a successful stint as executive vice president of the GFI group. Since he left the CFTC in 2019, Chris has taken on a growing interest in crypto assets and has called for the U.S. Congress to recognize the future of cryptocurrencies. He now serves as a senior counsel at Wilkie Farr and Gallagher and is co-chair of the Wilkie Digital Works practice. He even has a new book out called Crypto Dad, The Fight for the Future of Money. Nick, you know this is our first episode tied to a book release, so that's another first for the swap. Now, I'm confident Chris will have some valuable insights and share on the future path of the crypto assets, and maybe we can even ask him to reflect on his time as chairman of the CFTC. Yeah, that would be good. Those uh, those firsts keep on coming thick and fast. So uh, let's bring Chris on. Chris, thanks so much for joining us on The Swap. As I was telling Nick, this is actually our first episode where we've uh, been part to a book launch. So we're excited to have that on our episode. So thank you very much for joining us and, and certainly best of luck with the book sales. Since leaving the CFTC, you've taken a very active interest in the development of cryptocurrencies and digital assets. You've even written a book on this topic entitled Crypto Dad, The Fight for the Future of Money making the case for a digital future for money. Why did you write this book? And can you explain the title, Fight for the Future of Money? Thanks, Scott. Uh, really simply, I, I wrote Crypto Dad, The Fight for the Future of Money to basically tell a big of an audience as I can that money is changing right before our eyes. And it's changing in a very dramatic way. In the same way that the internet has changed everything we know about retail, about shopping, about information gathering, 
about photography, about music. Well, you know what it's going to do? It is doing the same thing to money and the, the institutions that handle money, banks and financial service companies. And it's naive to think that it won't. It absolutely will. It's doing it already. I saw it during my time at the CFTC and I see it now. And the reason why I call it the fight for the future of money, because the real question is money carries with it social values. The dollar is historically as has the euro carried values of free markets, of free enterprise, of free commerce, and of the rule of law and privacy. But other forms of money by other systems, non-democracies, carry other values. The new digital yuan is going to be used as a surveillance tool. It's not going to necessarily uh, be for the rule of money if political party policy trumps the rule of law. And so the fight for the future of money is the fight for what values are going to be in the money of the future, whether that is sovereign, what they call central bank digital money, or whether it's non-sovereign forms of transfer of value, whether those be Bitcoin or Ethereum or stable coins. The question is, what values is society, a free society, going to be demand are going to demand to be in that money? And that's a battle that's being waged today in many different forms, in many different countries, in many different societies around the world. And we've all got a vested interest into what that money is going to look like in the future. Now, the book makes a case for the internet of value that will completely transform financial services and turn money into a fully digital asset. The other thing I'm struck by is the scale the internet gives you, which is, as we all know, with TikTok and all these other apps, et cetera, it's massive and it's instantaneous. So what is the need for this to become a reality and how quickly can it happen? It's happening already. You know, the interesting thing is society, aside from government, society has been experimenting with digital money for 10 years now, going back to the last financial crisis, and actually quite successfully. You know, if you look at Bitcoin, whatever one may think of it, it's working and it hasn't broken. It's been working now for 10 years and it's steadily growing in value for a lot of reasons. And people may have different views on that, but it's been in existence for 10 years. It's almost as if governments have suddenly woken up and seeing that society has gone on its own and begun this experiment and governments are saying, whoa, wait a minute, we've got a role here. But the thing that all of us need to remember is money is as much a social construct as it is a government construct. Governments can put forward all the money they want, but if it doesn't have society support, it will not succeed. At the end of World War I, the French premier George Clemenceau said, Looking back on the carnage of the war, he said, war is too important to be left in the hands of generals. Well, in a similar way, money is too important to be left in the hands of central bankers. Mark Carney gave a speech recently where he said, you know, we central bankers are merely the custodian of people's trust in money. And he's absolutely right about that. So my point is, that society and governments need to come together. If digital money is considered to be just something to be developed by central banks, it won't enjoy the support of a free society. And that's why, again, I come back to values. At the end of the day, money will only have the support of a free society if it encodes their norms and their values. And included in that is the most important value of all is individual privacy and people's financial transactions. Let's talk about those central bankers. 
Bank of International Settlements are thinking about developing central bank digital currencies or CBDCs, which just trips off the tongue there. So what do you think about these efforts and how will the crypto markets change if you have central banks issuing a digital dollar, euro, yen, or yuan, as you noted? Can CBDCs and centralized finance and decentralized finance coexist here? Yeah. So first of all, I'm a big supporter of further exploration of central bank digital currency here in the United States. I'm a founder of the Digital Dollar Foundation, which is partnered with Accenture to launch the Digital Dollar Project. For a time, the Digital Dollar Project was the only private sector initiative to work with central banks to bring a private sector's point of view to the development of central bank digital money. I'm pleased to see that now a digital euro project has been launched. I think there's a digital pound project been launched. So the notion that the private sector has something to say about digital currency is catching on in the West, and I think that's a good thing. Ultimately, I believe that the presence of both sovereign and non-sovereign digital currency may be important because I think both sides may keep the other side honest. I think if there is a monopoly on digital currency by governments, they may not be as concerned about social norms such as privacy and efficiency, et cetera. I think if one competes against the other, and I know there's concern, there's some parallels in U.S. history where you had multiple bank issuance of dollars alongside the Fed and national banks. I think we can cross that bridge when we get to it. I think right now, the interplay between the private sector and the public sector is the best form. And, you know, the historical analogy I point to is the early internet. You know, it wasn't just a government construct. Even though the Department of Defense launched it, it was really the private sector that it made it commercially useful. And I think that big sort of unruly mess that is democracy, that is the private marketplace, is the best way to evolve our way into the digital future of money. Scott, you mentioned DeFi. You know, DeFi as a former regulator, you can appreciate this. Decentralized finance is really challenging for regulators. And why is that? Well, regulators, when they approach any commercial ecosystem, it can be financial services, it can be healthcare, it can be anyone, kind of approach it the same way. They say, okay, let me look at this ecosystem. Where are the intermediaries? Where are the centralizers? Where are the bottlenecks? Well, once we identify them, we'll now register them, we'll license them, we'll co-op them, and we'll say to them, look, in return for this license, you will collect information, you will yourself register your participants, you will, in a sense, help us do our job as regulators, and in return, we'll give you quasi-monopolies, we'll give you barriers to entry, and we'll all get along very, very well. And that's the way regulation generally works in most analog systems. Well, suddenly DeFi comes along, disintermediating the intermediaries, and regulators are pulling their hair out saying, okay, well, how do I regulate this when suddenly all my my co-opted entities no longer have a monopoly on all the activity in this ecosystem? But it can be done. What regulators need to do is adopt a different mindset. Instead of an entity-based form of regulation, we need to think about an activities-based form of regulation. Let's be less focused on licensing entities and more focused on what are the activities that we are looking to curb or empower or condone or prohibit. And once we do that, guess what? DeFi actually gives us some of the tools to do an activities-based form of regulation through things like pattern recognition, artificial intelligence, big data analysis, some of the same tools 
that the big social media and the big online retailers use to track patterns. So instead of looking so much at the entities, let's look at activities and then work our way back to identify the individual entities in order to sanction them as necessary. So DeFi shouldn't be so frightening to regulators, but what regulators need to do is have a different mindset. They need to focus on activities and not so much on entities. It'll take a sea change in approaches to regulation, but it can be done and it is the way of the future. Well, speaking of regulators, our friend, Gary Gensler, who is now former CFTC chair and now chair of the SEC, has been making news recently regarding the regulation of crypto assets and platforms. He has encouraged firms to come to the table and have a dialogue about applying regulation, again, probably on a very entity basis, as you noted. But at the same time, the SEC is also threatening enforcement actions on certain activities. Now, as former chair of the CFTC, which also has a role in overseeing some of these markets, what is your perspective on the looming regulatory battle? And should we bring the crypto space under existing rules or give it more flexibility? Well, first of all, as a former chairman, as a former regulator, the one thing you know, it's got, you know, this regulators have a fair amount of discretion. So a choice to go in with guns a blazing is a choice. It's not necessarily uh, mandatory uh, simply because you're running an agency. During my time at the CFTC, in the early days of cryptocurrencies in 2017, I knew our enforcement division was going hard in a certain area having to do with what's called physical delivery. And a lot of the respondents to those subpoenas were saying, well, wait a minute, we don't know what physical delivery means in the case of digital assets. And so I used the discretion of a chairman to actually pause enforcement action while our rule writing team could put together a set of guidance to the marketplace as to what does physical delivery mean. Once we announced that, and once we gave the market several months to digest it, then we resumed enforcement activity. So the point I want to make is, and I'm not pointing at this to be critical of any other chairman's policy, but chairs do have an enormous amount of discretion. Agencies have an enormous amount of discretion. It's how you use that discretion. I believe that it's incumbent when you have a new technology to identify really what public policy are you trying to bring to bear? Is your public policy to shut it down? Or is your public policy to say, wait a minute, there's both challenges, but also opportunities in this new technology. Let's give the private sector time to work through those. Let's focus on maybe where some of the downside is, but without shutting off perhaps some of the upside opportunity for movement. You know, we have to remember whether it's at the CFTC, the SEC, or any regulatory agency in the United States or in the West, that we're overseeing a venerable, a very sophisticated, but a very antiquated financial system. And if we view this technology only as a threat and not as an opportunity to modernize our system, we're actually going to lose ground to other economies that take it as an opportunity to move forward. So my worry generally about an enforcement-heavy approach to this technology is that we're missing the opportunity to use what discretion we have to further its ability to modernize our system at the short-term gain of maybe shutting down some illicit activity and missing the bigger opportunity for modernization of our financial system. Now, in Gary's recent testimony on Capitol Hill, he highlighted some of the concerns about anonymity of these digital assets, which is, as you kind of highlighted in your reference to the DeFi structure. And for regulators, this has got to be kind of frustrating not to be able to see or identify the entities behind the trade. And you pointed out the 
the challenges with physical delivery of digital assets. So these are all new, important questions. So how important is this concern about anonymity and the push for regulation? I have to say, I, I think the over-concern about identity is a bit of a 20th century mindset that's missing the opportunity. One of the things I do in my book, Crypto Dad, is actually make a very simple explanation of what it is about money that's changing. And so if you'll allow me just to take a minute to talk about that. Throughout human history, from the dawn of civilization, money came in one form, and that was the form of a token. And whether that token was a shell or a bead or wampum or a metal coin or actually paper money invented by the Chinese, it was a token of value. And the way to identify the validity of that token is in the token itself, okay? Take a dollar bill today or a euro, you hold it in your hands, you hold it up to the light, you validate that the token is what it says it is. So if you go into a shop to buy a sandwich and you hand a token, they don't need to know you're Scott O'Malley. They don't need to know, Scott, where you bank or how much money's in your bank. All they need to know is that that, that $20 bill or that 20 euro note is in fact what it is. They validate the token. That makes intuitive sense. Humans have tokenized money encoded in our DNA. We intuitively understand it. The problem is, is that once we became into a more modern age, we discovered the one major shortcomings of tokenized money, and that it's effectively a local instrument. If it's fiat, the further you go from the point of issuance, the less value it is. My $20 bill won't work in London. My $20 bill certainly won't work in Singapore or Malaysia. And so the local problem of money was solved by a new form of money, and that was called banknotes. The Bank of Amsterdam said to a merchant, put your Dutch guilders in our vault in the basement, and we'll issue you a banknote, and you can travel down to Venice, and a bank in Venice will give you credit in Venetian ducats. The banknote system basically took over the world, but the banknote system is fundamentally different than a token system because it requires identity in every case. So when you go into the shop and you basically use a check to buy that sandwich or use a debit card, somewhere, somehow, somebody needs to know that you're Scott O'Malia and you bank with whatever bank you bank with and that you have so much money in your bank account. And then ultimately, that the money was transferred from that bank to another bank. The problem with the banknote system is it's exclusive. A billion people in this world don't have identity. If you don't have identity, you can't use the system. It's slow because we need to do all that verification. Oh, yes, that's Scott O'Malley. Oh, yes, he banks at Barclays, et cetera, et cetera. And it costs money. Everybody's got to be paid to do all those transactions. So to sum up, tokenized system, local. Bank no system, exclusive. The latency, costly. Why is this new form of money so revolutionary? Because it solves all four of those problems. Money is no longer local. It's no longer exclusive. It's no longer slow. It's no longer costly. Digital money can move around the world in a second and doesn't require identity. That's what's freaking out regulators. They're so used to establishing identity as the first step in every transaction. That's how KYC AML works. That's how the whole system works. But this new breakthrough could lower the cost of the global financial system. It could turbocharge our economies. It could bring more people into the system. So are we going to let regulators' insistence on identity in every case stop all these advantages that this new form of money gives us? We don't have to have that conflict 
if we regulators can think about it in a different way. I mentioned before, if instead of trying to establish identity in the first step, why don't we look at pattern recognition? Why don't we look at transaction activity? And then even though it's pseudonymous, by the way, it's not anonymous. That's a misunderstanding. Blockchain-based transactions are not anonymous. They're pseudonymous, meaning that you can uncover the identity. So if we track the transactions and then we discover illicit conduct, we can work our way back to identifying. So identity as a second and necessary step, as opposed to identity as a primary and essential step. That's how we need to be thinking about this. If we're willing to think about this, we can set up a brand new financial system that will, as I say, will take so much cost out of the global financial system, will add so much speed and immediacy and 24-7 activity, and most importantly, add an inclusionary impact that we don't have today because that identity-based system excludes anywhere from one-seventh of the world population to 5% of the American population from access to the system. So there's great advantages here if we're willing to think beyond our existing mindset, which is identity in every case. Okay, but let's use the CFTC, you know, our experience. We have eligible market participants coming into futures markets, and we want to be careful about who's trading and making sure that necessary customer protections are in place. If we don't know who's behind the trade, can we ensure that the protections are there or you're able to you know, find and prosecute yeah. illegal behavior through manipulation or fraud or whatever illegal behavior that might be conducted? How do we think about that? So just because the technology doesn't require identity in every case, that doesn't mean that in markets, in areas where it's appropriate, where parties have certain responsibilities, their identity cannot be established in every case. You know, it's funny, if you've driven a Tesla, you know, when you go from a analog old-fashioned car, like some I keep in my garage, to a digital car, the tolerances are so tight that sometimes you then need to add back certain latency. So in a Tesla, when you take your foot off the gas, it actually applies brakes because otherwise the jolt would send you into the back seat of the car because of that sudden braking performance. In digital systems, sometimes because you can go to zero tolerance, you may want to build in some artificial latency. But here's the point. You're building in a degree of latency calibrated to what you're trying to do as opposed to a latency that's dictated by the analog technology itself. So just because the new technology allows us not to use identity as a first step in every case doesn't mean we do away with identity in all cases. It just means that we can now choose where we need to establish identity as opposed to, you know, somebody with $200 in his account is doing a $20 transaction and we need to establish his identity before he can buy a sandwich. I mean, honestly, we don't need that. It's not a money laundering transaction. On the other hand, somebody who's a, a market participant in a market where they have certain responsibilities to other market participants, we can establish their identity, but for the right purposes. You know, a lot of people talk about digital identity. Beautiful digital identity is Hopefully, we can all become masters of our identity, and we can decide as a sovereign people when we give up identity, when we don't. Every day, we're giving up our identity all over the place way more than we need to, but because it's an analog system, we can't calibrate how much identity to give away in each case. So again, when we move into a digital economy, and when we talk about this internet of value, I'm talking about 
the internet finally now coming into the financial system, it's so revolutionized every other walk of life. It's now doing it to the financial system. And my worry is that regulators and legacy businesses are so financial service business, so wedded to the old way of doing things, see this as a threat as opposed to seeing it as an opportunity. Yep. Great. Well explained, Chris. Thanks. Now, ISDA has established a new working group that will convene experts from both the finance and crypto sectors to explore the legal and documentation issues related to crypto derivatives. Do you share our view that a robust legal framework and common standards will be critical in supporting the safe growth of this asset class by facilitating new hedging tools based on common defined terms and expectations? And how important do you think this is in connecting the central bank digital products with the existing financial framework? Absolutely. I mean, I think once again, is doing what it's always done. That is bringing that commercial sense, that practical approach to an evolutionary marketplace. And so as we now move into this sort of the internet of finance, the internet of money, you know, it's very, very important that the responsible uh, players in this industry work through ISDA to bring standards to bear. Again, it really doesn't work. Having been inside the regulatory edifice, regulators really struggle with how this technology is impacting the marketplace. It requires the market participants themselves to come together, identify best practices, identify areas of concern, build structures around it, propose regulatory frameworks, and then work with regulators so regulators can understand the imperatives and understand the challenges and come up with something that works for both regulators and for the regulated industry. So I think your timing is perfect on this. It's a really important, it's a really important initiative. Well, wish us luck. Thanks. Now, your time at the CFTC from 2014 to 2019 coincided with an important time for the derivatives market following the implementation of the post-crisis reforms, Dodd-Frank. You sought to review some of these rules to ensure that they worked effectively and they were appropriate, and you established uh, two major proposals in 2018, one on cross-border regulation and the other on swap execution facilities. Why do you think change was needed in those areas, and are you satisfied with where things have ended up? Uh, mostly on one and largely on the other. So in the area of swaps execution, as I explained in detail in my book, I think Congress got Title VII right when it came to the three objectives of bringing central counterparty clearing, bringing swaps reporting, and bringing a regulatory regime to swaps execution. As I said, I think Congress got it right. I think the CFTC got most of the implementation right. I think it did a fabulous job on swaps clearing. I think swaps reporting almost worked. The problem was I think the regulators decided they could do it themselves rather than having the industry do it. And in terms of swaps licensing and regulation of swaps execution, I think the CFTC took a rather futures-based central limit order book approach, and I was a critic of that. I thought that just doesn't work when you have a much more bespoke, uh, episodically liquid marketplace needed much more flexibility and execution as Congress prescribed. I was very pleased when the actually first licensure came out, as I explained in my book, of swaps execution facilities, because notwithstanding the fact that the CFTC rules were fairly wooden, the approach that the staff took was very flexible. So we got to the right place, but without actually changing the CFTC rules. So the reason why I say I'm largely satisfied, I'm largely satisfied with the outcome, I did try to change those rules when I became chairman. 
And the first draft I put out missed the mark, as I explained in my book, and I explained why I think it missed the mark. And unfortunately, I made the choice not to extend my term at the CFTC and therefore wasn't able to put a revised rule set across the transom while I was there. And I explained in my book why I think long-term that's a missed opportunity because I'm concerned that a future commission may not interpret those rules with as much flexibility as quite to his credit, Chairman Massa did and that I continued to do during my term. Let's turn to the one that I think was more successful, and that was the cross-border approach. In 20, the the years passed now, I think it was 2013, the CFTC put forward a cross-border interpretory rule set on cross-border that basically, as our fellow colleague uh, Jill Summers noted, was an intergalactic commerce clause. The CFTC sought to regulate basically every swap execution by any American firm anywhere in the world under U.S. rules. It was a a real misstep. It was uh, harshly received by our colleagues in Europe and in Asia. It was perceived as almost American imperialism, and uh, it caused enormous amount of reputational harm and uh, friction and tension for the CFTC. In 2018, I put forward a, a white paper proposing a change based upon deference. They basically, a swaps transactions in the United States would be under CFTC jurisdiction. Swap transactions outside the United States would be under the local regime, provided they had regulatory reform provisions in place that were comparable. That was enacted, and it's working, I think, very well. It's lowered the tensions um, between the United States and overseas derivatives regulators significantly. And as a result of that, I think we're in a much better place. It's not perfect. I think Commissioner Dawn Stump has made some sensible proposals. And under Chairman Tarbert, that cross-border guidance was withdrawn. And so I think we're in a better place now to, to even make further improvements, but a lot better place than where we were. I would agree that, that it is improving on cross-border. The previous episode on the swap, we had Sean Berrigan on, and we talked about the challenges around CCP recognition, and we're still facing a looming deadline mid-next year and what's to be done around Euro clearing. I encourage you to listen to that, that episode. Sean was of course, defending his position, but uh, we still have some way to go in terms of really cross-border trust and reliance on the rules. But there is some hope. I can make analogies to you know inter-European squabbles, and the Americans are, find ourselves in the crosshairs of cross-channel battles. And as I explained in my book, a, a lot of that has to do with European politics, economic and otherwise. And unfortunately, the United States finds itself as the children of divorcing parents again and again and again. And you know what? The United States has the biggest, most important financial markets in the world. And the United States really, in this area, needs to be very clear that Europe can do what Europe's going to do, but it cannot affect the world's most important derivative markets that set the global benchmark price for some of the world's most important commodities and benchmarks, including interest rate benchmarks. And so, you know, I I was accused from time to time of being fairly strident in my approach. But then again, I felt as if I was the guardian of one of the world's most important markets. And I heard it often when I traveled to Asia that it was very important that the American markets you know, not be destabilized by a European squabble. And I fought hard for that. Yeah. Well, of course, these are global markets. Europeans have the right to set their own regulations. And what we want to do is make sure that when you have that consistency, which was designed in the G20 principles back in, in Pittsburgh, when you achieve that consistency, go ahead and rely on that 
cooperation and collaboration. I think there is a good working relationship. Anyway. Agreed. Remember, though, that it's U.S. firms that provide the preponderance of liquidity in those European markets. Well, this is a topic. We'll have to have another episode on cross-border harmonization or disharmonization, depending on your perspective. That'll have to be another episode. Let's turn to the post-pandemic crisis. You left the CFTC in 2019, eight months before the crisis. The volatility in 2020 tested the resilience of the derivatives market infrastructure. To what extent do you think it passed the test and what further changes to the regulatory framework are required, if any? Well, I think it passed the test in many ways, but I think some of the things I was warning about back in 2014, 2015, 2016 actually showed themselves. That is that a lot of the impact of some of the capital rules of some of the leverage ratios that have been put imposed upon the banks reflected themselves in a huge squeeze in liquidity in the treasury markets. Central banks think of themselves, going back to the great Walter Badgett, as lenders of last resort. I think they found themselves as liquidity providers and market makers of last resort, certainly in the treasury market, and that's not what they ever expected to find themselves in that position. And I think to some degree, some of the impetus to shore up bank balance sheets, to de-risk banks from solvency concerns or insolvency concerns, reflected themselves in a less capacity to make markets, to provide liquidity during the liquidity squeeze in the treasury market. And so, you know, risk is like a balloon. You squeeze it in one area and it pops out in another. And I think as we, uh, perhaps because it's something I talk about in my book, because of the dominance of central bankers at FSB, the Financial Stability Board, and the concern about bank solvency, unfortunately, the underappreciation for the impact that would have in financial trading markets during liquidity squeezes played out during the crisis. So I think that In many ways, the clearing mandate worked well. I think other parts of the global reform efforts following the last financial crisis worked well. But I think there's major concerns about liquidity issues in trading markets we saw. And I think part of the reason is because some of those concerns to buttress up bank balance sheets reflected in banks being unable or unwilling to provide liquidity to trading markets Now, let's turn to another important transformation. That's LIBOR. We're nearing the end of 2021, the turning point in which the majority of LIBOR settings will either cease to be published or become non-representative. This deadline has been looming for several years. Are you confident of the uh, smooth transition away from LIBOR? I'm confident in the transition away from LIBOR. I I don't think it's going to be necessarily smooth, but I'm confident in the transition. I I think the big banks are there. They've made the transition. I think in countries outside the United States that have of a diverse banking sector, I think there's less you know, banks to get the message out to. But here in the United States, you know, we've got a much different banking system than in the UK. And otherwise, you know, we have both big Wall Street banks, but we have a great, actually commendable tradition of community and regional and smaller banks that play an important role in lending to the real economy. And I think for many of them, this transition is sort of like a Y2K thing. It's Okay, yeah, Joe in the back office, he's got the LIBOR thing. Yeah, I think I, he's on vacation this week, but he'll be back next week. We'll check in and see how it's going. And so getting the word out. Um, I, you know, I'm, I'm also a member of the board of the American Financial Exchange, which has a benchmark rate called Meribor, which is based upon the lending of regional and, and smaller community banks. 
It's a very effective marketplace. And we in the United States, I think, are very pleased that while there be a, a rate based upon the cost of borrowing by the big banks called SOFR, but there'll also be choice of lending rate. And for regional smaller banks, uh, Ameribor has, has been a growing choice for them. So choice of benchmark, we think is quite important here, and it seems to be playing out in that way. Now, you've had a long and distinguished career that includes founding a law firm back in the 90s. You were a driving force in the growth of GFI Group, and then entering public service with the CFTC, in which we had a brief overlap at the commission, but a long friendship nonetheless. What have been the highlights of this journey? And with hindsight, what would you do differently? Gosh, I don't think I'd do anything differently, Scott. I'm, I'm a little bit of a peripatetic person. I, you know, My mind jumps around. I like different things. I've enjoyed every bit of the career I've had. You left out the, perhaps the most important thing, and that is I had a great band up here in Jersey. We traveled the East Coast and played at the Stone Pony and other places. And if I could do anything different, I'd probably like to do a little bit more music and hoping to do a little bit more music in the future. But um, it's been a fun journey. And you know, I just thank God every day that I live in a you know pluralistic and diverse economy where I could have had different careers and enjoy every one of them and enjoy the journey. And I talk a little bit about that in my book. You know, like if we can maintain that for our children, the ability to, to have multiple careers in one's life and enjoy them as you go along, that's a beautiful thing. And, and I've been very blessed to enjoy that. But you also have a wonderful family, which uh, I know you take a lot of satisfaction in as well. Now, for those listening at home, Chris has pitched his book, he's pitched his band, and he's pitched a Maribor. So this is a, a threefer. That's terrific, Chris. The first <laughs> that any guest has done. Now, you know, what advice would you give someone embarking on a career in financial services? This is kind of my traditional wrap-up question. We do need new blood in the business, and youth is to just launch a future leaders and derivatives trying to build diversity and fresh ideas. What advice would you give somebody in this business? Well, I'd give them two pieces of advice is that First of all, it's a great industry, and it's an an industry on the verge, I think, of really remarkable technological change. And so it's a great time to get in because I think these new technologies are going to require a new generation that intuitively understands them, that's going to bring greater inclusion to this industry. It's going to lower the latency, lower the cost, take out rent-seeking in the industry. It's going to be tremendously, I think, effective. The other thing I would say is, don't listen to the politicians. The politicians want to denigrate finance because it's good for their business. Okay, they're talking their book every day. And I was there. I get it. I understand. It's the gift that never keeps giving to denigrate finance. But finance is a great industry. You actually get to help people. Finance is at the heart of everything people do, whether it's to buy a home, whether it's to buy an automobile, whether it's to start a job, whether it's to finance and education. And if we can make that less costly, more efficient, more inclusive, we're serving our fellow man. It's a wonderful industry, and I encourage young people to get in at this time of real rapid technological change. Hey, it's only $100 trillion necessary to make our economy more sustainable. And we know that the youth and, and certainly people in finance today have a real passion for making it more sustainable. And, and we're going to need finance to, to drive that innovation to make those investments. So we hope they come in and there is a bright future. I completely agree with you. Well, that's all we have time for today, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a great conversation. I wish you all the best with your book. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Scott. Your copy's in the mail. You'll get it soon. Excellent. Thank you. Scott, that was a pretty comprehensive tour of the crypto world. And it was fascinating to hear Chris's perspectives on a number of different issues. 
I'd like to pick up on one element you discussed, though, which is the importance of a robust legal framework and common standards for crypto derivatives. Why do you think this is so important and what is ISDA doing on this front? Well, developing robust legal frameworks and standards is really core to what ISDA does to ensure derivative markets function safely and efficiently. At this stage, derivatives based on digital assets are being traded using amended versions of existing documentation and definitions, as well as templates or entirely bespoke documentation that has been developed internally. Now, that's just about manageable up to a certain point, but as this market grows, the lack of standardization becomes a bigger issue that hampers transparency, liquidity, and also increases risk. As I mentioned to Chris, we've recently established a digital asset legal and documentation working group to explore the unique characteristics of crypto derivatives. The group will focus on specific legal standards, just as we have done in the past for conventional assets, such as interest rates and credit. We're excited to start get our teeth into this work, and Chris's observations only show how important that that we press ahead with this. We fully respect that digital assets are unique assets, and we want to recognize that. We just simply cannot put a FX overlay on this and and just say, we're done. We have to really recognize the idiosyncratic behaviors and and, uh, functions in a digital space. And most importantly, we can't make this a paper document. This really has to be a digital document. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, we'll definitely keep market participants up to date with our progress on this. And I'm sure it will also be a fruitful topic for many podcasts to come. For now, though, we're out of time. We've got other great guests lined up between now and the end of the year. So please do keep your eyes peeled for upcoming episodes. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org and our social media channels. See you next time.